having that knowledge, applying it to the methodology we were using for forecasting and budgeting, organizationally, we just realized that these things needed to be connected more than they were in order for us to be as successful as we could be. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name's Ken Boyd, and I'm a four-time author, including the book, Cost Accounting for Dummies. I'm a business writer, a former CPA, and I'm the content marketing manager at Stamply. Joining me today is Ryan Myers, the Chief Financial Officer at America's Thrift Stores. Ryan, welcome. Thanks, Ken. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I noticed your guitar in the background. I'm a struggling guitar player myself. <laughs> Not like you, though, as we'll find out. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks for having me come on today. I grew up here in Birmingham. We are headquartered here in Birmingham, so this is home for me. Went to Alabama for a bit, took a job that brought me to Springfield, Missouri, and so finished finished my undergrad there at Missouri State University in music, um, which is a, a very clear and normal career path option for someone who wants to work in finance one day. Um, <laughs> came back to Birmingham actually to work at America's Thrift. I started here as an operator in our stores. I went back and got my master's at Alabama during that time, and then was able to kind of move into a data analysis technology type role at ATS. Went and worked for about a year at Shipped, which was a grocery delivery startup headquartered here in Birmingham. They sold to Target back in 2017, which is when I landed back at America's Thrift in an FP&A role. Did FP&A for a bit, moved into a kind of VP of finance and FP&A role. And then, and then, you know, in the last couple of years have been the CFO here at America's Thrift. So that is probably the quickest I've ever told that story, but that's, that is a (laughs) nutshell of my career up until this point. So. Well, that's great. That's really helpful. Do you still have time to play music and what instruments do you play besides guitar? I have less time than I would like for music. I have I have three kids under the age of 10 um, and they oh, take gosh. up a good bit of my time. I play bass. I actually marched in the band at Alabama, played trombone, and my major was in voice. I will not make you listen to me sing today, <laughs> but I, I do have a piece of paper that says I can do so for whatever that's worth. So Okay, great. I'm going to, as I mentioned, refer to a document I have pulled up on my computer here. Tell us about the uh, the structure of your finance department, team members, and who's maybe what the organization looks like. Sure, sure. Our finance umbrella includes obviously typical accounting and finance functions, as well as IT and planning and analytics, which is kind of our data center, you know, for America's Thrift. I have a chief accounting officer and controller who reports to me. He manages the accounting team, accounts payable, purchasing. I also have a financial analysis group that that reports up to me. That's a couple of folks who are really focused more on ERP work and reporting and cost savings initiatives, things like that. 
our technology group manages point of sale. I mean, we are a retailer, so they manage point of sale, but they also manage communications platforms like Zoom and Slack. Uh-huh. They manage needs like PAs in our stores where we can make announcements, things like that. And then our planning and analytics group is you know, really exactly what it sounds like. We do demand planning for each store in terms of determining what kind of product and what quantity of product needs to be processed and stocked. And then they do all the analytics around, you know, KPIs and scorecards for operators, both you know, on the retail side of the business, as well as on the donations collection side of the business. We also have a wholesale division and we have a, a, a very, very new online thrift component that they do some analytics work for. All in all, that's, I think, roughly 30 people in that group total. Okay. Interesting that you started online. It seems like a natural progression, but I wouldn't have thought of it. <laughs> the if, if I can for a second on sure. online, it's, you know, ThreadUp really kind of became the hot name in online secondhand goods, you know, over the last several years. They issue an annual state of thrift report that's really okay. interesting. It's good if you're interested at all in this industry. It, it's a great kind of overview. But yeah, I mean, there's the reality is when you look at the number of eyeballs that are going to see a thing in one of our stores, and given every single item that hits the floor in one of our stores is a unique item, you know, online is a way to get those most unique items that, you know, in one store, you might not get the right eyeballs on it. But once you open that up, you know, nationwide, it's a huge audience. We're in five states. And I think within 30 days of kind of online operations, we'd ship something to every single state. That's uh, so a huge demand online for secondhand goods, especially when they are kind of very unique or niche items. My youngest graduated from college and my two girls went to thrift shop in Lawrence, Kansas, where my youngest just graduated just over the weekend. And it was really well designed and laid out as we'll get to with your business. Um, tell me about your board, how many members, what's the makeup and how sure. and what do you report to them? Sure. Our board is, got to count in my head, I should have written this down. It's seven or eight members or so. We have, we're private equity owned. So we have our CEO sits on the board. We have two representatives from our primary sponsor. There's a co-investor who has a seat on the board. Make-A-Wish of Alabama has a seat on our board. They are our charity partner for the entire state of Alabama and our largest, you know, kind of charity partnership. And then we have obviously several, you know, we, or sorry, we have two kind of external advisors. One, a former CFO at Savers, which is obviously the largest for-profit thrift, you know, thrift chain. And then we have a, a former Cisco IBM person who's on the board as a kind of, she started out with us as a performance coach, but obviously just had a ton of experience and we were able to kind of snag her and get her on the board. So we do formal, you know, quarterly board meetings. We do kind of a monthly informal kind of check-in call with them. We have a pretty robust, I guess, kind of financial package. We we were private equity owned before that our latest sponsors as well. So we had gotten in the rhythm of, you know, a lot of data and really kind of understanding different views of the business that are helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but typically, I mean, when you think about major KPIs beyond, you know, just earnings, um, 
You know, we look at store contribution as a significant KPI that, that we're reporting there. We're looking at, you know, labor is actually one of the biggest kind of, if you think about cost items for thrift, mm-hmm. we are purchasing product from the charity partners, but that cost doesn't come close to comparing to the amount of labor that you spend just getting an item from here's a bag of stuff that sat in my attic to here's something that we can merchandise and sell. Um, You know, and and everything that goes along with, you know, senior lender relationships, you know, covenant calculations, cash flow forecasts, all that. So it's a pretty standard, I think, private equity-based financial package with some thrift-specific things sprinkled in here and there as needed. Okay. That's great. That's really helpful. What is your tech stack and do you is there any type of software that you use that's industry specific? Absolutely. And I'll start there. So our point of sale system, we purchased that through a company called Secure Retail out of Canada. They resell Logivision, which is another Canadian company's point of sale, but they've built a software system called S-Tags. And what that allows us to do is process merchandise in the back room. So if you think about Our process in a nutshell is you get that bag from your attic, someone sorts through it, pulls out the items that can't be sold. Maybe they're ripped, stained, torn, things like that. The items that can be sold, they're going to put that on a hanger and slide it down a rail. And then we have a person in each of our stores or three three people in each of our stores who are called graders. And they're going to get that item that's going to come up and slide up in front of them on the rail and they're going to actually use that S-Tag software to grade the item. So they're going to input quality and condition. And then we control a centralized pricing matrix that generates the price for that specific item based on its category, quality, condition, size, things like that. And that's going to generate a barcode, a barcoded ticket that will get attached to that item behind it. Okay. Uh, that system, you know, the point of sale system is, you know, system of record for us, if you will. And everything kind of drives off of that. We have a we have NetSuite as our ERP. Uh, we have NetSuite integrated with semi integrated with the point of sale in terms of getting data out and, and getting transactional entries posted in NetSuite. We are, I want to say, eighty to ninety percent of our entries are transactional. We're not heavy on journal entries because it's really nice to be able to trace that transaction all the way back to the source. Uh-huh. Um, we have an internal data warehouse that's currently on-premise, but being migrated to Azure as we speak. And we have a Dundas business intelligence tool connected to that. And that really kind of serves as our hub for, we have a loyalty program that we aggregate data from. We have a human capital management system. We use Dayforce from Ceridian that we import ETL data from there. And of course, the point of sale And then we have several kind of in-house built applications for managing our donations network from where our assets we operate with. If you've ever seen those metal bins um, at a convenience store or Walmart parking lot, something like that. Um, So we have asset management systems we've developed for those as well as mechanisms to track kind of their productivity. And all of that data comes into the data warehouse as well. So from a business intelligence standpoint, that the Dundas tool really serves as kind of the epicenter of any operator in the company is going to go there first to figure out what's going on. Interesting. Wow. You've, I had questions written down on inventory and you've answered some of them. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at my next set of questions here. Your career path has been less traditional starting in operations and data 
analysis that you explained. Could you tell us more about that journey and what led you to this point in your career? And I'm interested to hear how you, what made you switch from music to finance? Sure. You know, music is, was a passion when I was, it still is. I love music. It is semi hard to make a dollar playing music <laughs> just in general. And ultimately some totally non-work related situations, um, made my, my wife and I feel like we needed to really get back down to Birmingham when we were living okay. in Springfield. And frankly, the thrift industry in general was not on my radar. And as a spoiler, it's never on anyone's radar until you get into <laughs> it. Once you get in, it's it, you really don't want to leave this. So when I came in as an operator, it was literally, you know, I'm going to work in these stores and then figure out, you know, what I want to do next. And music could have still been an option at that point, just depending on what was available. But what I found was I, I loved the industry and it was fascinating to me how intricate and complex it was because from the outside, you think you're just taking people's junk and putting a price tag on it. And it's just not that. And it was eye-opening for me. And so as I kind of fell in love with the process-oriented nature of specifically the back room in our stores, which is the best analogy is an assembly plant, except you're kind of deconstructing and reconstructing this bag of stuff into merchandisable items. And so from there, you know, really leaned into how can we leverage the data that we have available to, you know, just perform better at an individual store level. And this was at the time, you know, we were transitioning as an organization from paper cash registers to a point of sale. And so really seeing what we could do to leverage that information was fascinating. At the same time, I, I was getting my master's in operations management at the University of Alabama. And so I was kind of learning all of these concepts that could be applied and was ultimately able to, you know, really apply a lot of that learning into a big continuous improvement project that really kind of upended our backroom operations and modernized them and made them more efficient. And, you know, that, that kind of sparked the opportunity for me to, you know, move into a, I did multi-unit with America Thrift for about half a year, had five or six of our stores. And then there was an opportunity at our store support center in Birmingham to, you know, come in and, and take over kind of the data analysis, which was really still kind of in its infancy at that point. Okay. And so super excited about that and did it. And everything kind of snowballed from there. What we found out was that before we had access to that data and someone who knew kind of how to wield it and leverage it, mm -hmm. that the financial operations of the business were very disjointed from the actual operations from the business. You know, we would get budgets that made sense on paper at the highest level from a year over year kind of trend analysis standpoint, but they lacked the context to capture, you know, some of the nuances of this business. And it's just, it's a very layered and complex business. And so when I realized that opportunity, we, we started kind of plugging in data analysis into our forecasting and budgeting process mm -hmm. uh, it, around the same time or maybe shortly thereafter, we decided to implement NetSuite. And though I was not really a finance team member at that point, not directly, certainly not accounting, um, 
I became kind of the project sponsor for the NetSuite implementation. Okay. And that was a long and arduous process, but it served as a six month crash course in all of the financial basics that I would have missed in my, you know, formal education. And so having that knowledge, applying it to the methodology we were using for forecasting and budgeting, organizationally, we just realized that these things needed to be connected more than they were in order for us to be as successful as we could be. And, you know, I, have a fantastic boss. Our COO, our CEO is just a fantastic human being with a ton of great experience. And, you know, to his credit, he, he took a chance and gave me the opportunity to, you know, to, to step in and try and do that, combine these things and lead us through that. And it worked out really well. And so it, it is a very non-traditional path And to be clear, I couldn't do it without our fantastic chief accounting officer who is a CPA and has all of the traditional, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very tight knit and close partnership. And what it allows for is for me to really live at the strategic cross-functional organizational level and not be bogged down in the weeds of, you know, calculating covenants and closing checklists and, and all of those things that, that can often get in the way of finance leaders being able to kind of step up at that strategic level. And that's a great explanation. I'm just curious, how long does it take you to close the books at month end typically? We are, we have an EBITDA number usually the fourth day after the period ends. And we have, you know, balance sheet recons, bank recons done usually by day six or seven, business day six or seven. Okay, business day six or seven. Typically our CEO letter and financial packages hitting the board, you know, between, you know, sometime by the end of the second week after the period ends. Well, that's pretty quick. It was not always that quick, but, you know, again, the transactional nature of the ERP and really leaning into that helps tremendously. We're not having to do a tremendous amount of accruals. The ones that we are, we have automated. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not having to chase down origins of an invoice because the P- the purchase order workflow works really well. That was really about getting the right team in place, but also just getting the right systems in place. And we were able to take it from, you know, typically it was closer to 20 days pre-NetSuite, I would say. Sure. That's interesting. That really reflects on it. This is a question that we seem to be asked everybody. How have the last two years impacted how you view your role on the team? I've always been for lack of a better word, not good at staying in my lane. You know, I've always been interested in what everyone else was doing and wanting to figure out how we could, you know, combine efforts to make things easier. But I think prior to March of 2020, I think you could be successful either way. I think that was optional. And the biggest thing I've seen is I just don't think that's optional today. Between labor being difficult, between inflation between operations. We were shut down for two months or so right at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, we were of course having daily calls. We were connecting, you know, lenders with private equity sponsors, investigating government programs, you know, all of that to figure out kind of how do you make cash work. And I think, I think when you go through that, you you start to realize how many of these seemingly independent variables or actions are all very connected. 
Right. And I just don't think it's optional for people anymore. For me, it's very clear that if we didn't operate in a cross-functional way, we would not have made it through the pandemic and all of the subsequent things that came along with it successfully. So, And that's a trend that I'm seeing with lots of people that we interview, that everything is interconnected. I didn't know it was. I was in a silo. Yeah, that is a common thread that we're hearing. What value is there in for-profit financial leaders partnering with charities and understanding nonprofits? And how have you seen those relationships benefit nonprofits? Sure. I mean, the the thrift industry in general, you know, the, the, the biggest players that everyone knows are nonprofits, right? Goodwill, Salvation Army, but Savers, you know, us, there are, there are several other kind of, you know, 20 to 40 store for-profit chains mm-hmm. out there. And those relationships vary, but it, it works really well for us because the relationships are symbiotic. You know, it, it, the reality is it's people who run nonprofits are focused on their mission, right? right. Make-A-Wish is very good at granting wishes to kids with, you know, critical illnesses, We support Children's Health of Atlanta, which is a Children's Miracle Network hospital in the state of Georgia. Uh, They are very good at providing health care to sick kids. They are not going to have the internal expertise to collect stuff and turn that into, you know, money that they can use to fund their real mission. And so the partnership for us is, you know, we're able to pay the easiest way to describe it as a royalty and typically it's done on a per pound donated basis. You know, so we weigh everything that comes in and we're paying a rate per pound to, to those charity partners. Um, and in exchange, the, the charity partner is getting that revenue. You know, I, I can't speak just because of the partners and their desire to, to not necessarily share all of those revenue numbers super publicly, can't speak to uh-huh. exact numbers, but the contributions are significant. Um, it represents a, you know, a... 30 to 40% of our EBITDA number type number. Wow. Uh, and, you know, that the charity partners want to, you know, they want to promote what we're doing because every time they get someone to give us donations, they're benefiting from that. And the biggest impact, you know, is beyond all of that for us internally, it's just with employee engagement. We just had our annual leaders conference with all of our store general managers, all of our donations managers, about a hundred people last week. And we always at that event have Make-A-Wish and Children's Health and some of our other partners, if they can come and do a presentation. And we had a, a wish kid family come to dinner one night and just kind of share their story about how Make-A-Wish impacted their life. Oh, that's great. Um, and it's, yeah, it's one, you know, you, There's never a dry eye. It's just you can't listen to those stories firsthand and not get emotional. But two, I think the sense of knowing that, yes, we have shareholders, we're responsible and accountable to those shareholders, but we're also doing a thing that's just inherently good. Uh, that, That is a huge boost in terms of engagement and motivation for the team, you know, up and down from a cashier or a grader in a store up to the executive team. And so that that piece of it is huge. And for our charity partners, again, I mean, we we get the numbers in terms of, you know, the ability for them to grant X more wishes 
or what percentage of, you know, we looked at our, all of our contributions to, to children south of Atlanta are going towards a brand new facility that's a children's cancer treatment center. And so we're able to see that in real time right. and understand what that's going to. They are great relationships that, you know, I would argue benefit us more than they do our charity partners. That's great. That's really interesting. I didn't understand how that connection worked. One question I had in thinking, and you answered a lot of the inventory questions. How do you determine that something is, for lack of a better word, obsolete or not sellable and rotated out because you have 10,000 new items in each store every day? How does that work? I was interested to hear about that. Sure. I mean, really, we let the customer tell us that. We have a pretty quick floor turn. So when you think about the thrift items, the, the average shelf life for an item is two to three weeks that something's going to be on the floor. So it's a very fast turn. And our customers have told us time and time again that they want variety and a fresh sales floor. When you look at our loyalty program data, the average member of our loyalty program shops with us almost three times a month. It's almost grocery store frequency. And so you have to turn the floor really quickly. Otherwise, they're coming in and they're saying, I saw this last week when I was here. And so we do that with a a space to sales report that our general managers look at every day. They're managing which categories are selling through at a higher pace. They're adjusting the amount of space they allot on the floor for those categories. And the ones that are selling through at a lower pace, they're adjusting output from the processing room as well as available space so that you know, really our goal is we want to maximize our floor in real time for what our customer wants to buy today. That's incredibly important when it comes to the shift in seasons. You know, so as you okay. can imagine, we have whatever it, you know, we're in the, we're in the Southeast. And so Chile is the first time it dips below 60 degrees, <laughs> but <laughs> the first time it does, there's a mad rush in our stores for, you know, jackets because parents go to pull the kid's jacket out of the closet and the sleeves come up to here, right. you know? Um, and so we want to be ready for that. So we do a lot of things around backstocking merchandise. So in the winter, you know, if it's December and we're going through donations and we're getting bags and bags of shorts, we're not going to put that on the floor today. Sure. We're going to hold it back and then put it out in the summer when it starts to get warm. And so doing that, we really, you know, again, the goal is meet the customer demand exactly where it is in that moment, because typically people don't come into our stores looking for one specific thing. They're looking for something broadly or they just want to look. And we want to have, you know, we want to try and predict what it is they're going to want so that it's there when they arrive. Interesting. That was the one piece of the inventory that I couldn't quite figure out. Well, Ryan, this has been great. And we always ask one more question at the end. If you had one piece of advice for leaders of modern finance, what would it be? Sure. I think this goes back to kind of what I said around COVID, but I think that we are at a point in this industry where finance leaders have the opportunity to not be viewed as the bad guy, the bean counter anymore, but that just takes a lot of relationship investment. We have all the appropriate staff to do all of the bean counting activities, and those are very good and fun and important things, but having the right people in place to get that done allows me to build those relationships with operators with shareholders, with stakeholders internally, so that we can be viewed as an ally and a support system. And that has just paid dividends for us in terms of being able to 
get people on board with where we want to go for having difficult conversations around, you know, cost and expense without people feeling like they have to get defensive. And, you know, that, again, that's just the best piece of advice I could give to anyone is build those relationships. Because if you want to be strategic, if you want to be a leader, not just of the finances of an organization, but of the business itself, those are just critical to getting that done. So. That's great. That's great. Well, this has been a great discussion. And Ryan, we really appreciate you being on the show and good luck for the rest of the year. And now that we're past COVID, I hope things go better for you. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate your time and the good questions and the conversation. Great. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.